0: welcome to the bible questions podcast brought to you by biblequestions.org and the holly street church of christ this podcast is dedicated to answering your bible questions from the bible my name is brian and along with jeff we are the hosts of this program
1: hello and welcome to the bible questions podcast program sponsored by the holly street church of christ as usual with me today is our
0: co-host brian brian how are you doing this morning Hey, Jeff, doing well. Looking forward to looking more into God's Word on what we're going to talk about today.
1: Yeah, today's subject is going to start off a little odd, because we want to talk about the biblical subject of stewardship. Now, I say odd because in our modern culture, the concept of stewardship, or even more so of stewards, kind of has a a limited meaning. I say that because, according to one source that I checked, Uh, If you say the word steward, people may think in terms of someone who looks after the passengers, like on a cruise ship or an aircraft or a train even, and brings them food, as in what we used to call an airline steward or an airline stewardess, which these days often is we call them flight attendants. So even though this word is, I don't know, somewhat archaic, especially that of being a steward, Uh, as we'll see as we kind of get into the lesson, and and we'll get into it right away. This is a very, very important concept from the perspective of God's Word. Brian, can you maybe kind of clarify it for our audience even more?
0: Yeah, absolutely. To your point, it is a word that we're not necessarily used to, but some of the synonyms and other definitions we'll recognize. So if we look at just a couple of dictionary definitions... For instance, Merriam-Webster says the conducting, supervising, or managing of something, especially the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. random house, the responsible overseeing and protection of something considered worth caring for and preserving. And also a second definition they offer is a person who acts as a surrogate of another or others, especially by managing property, financial affairs, estate, so forth. Now, if we look in the Greek, the Greek word has also two definitions. One literally means house distributor, or manager, or overseer. And then it says, an employee in that capacity, and I'm looking at Strong's Greek definition, an employee in that capacity, by extension, a fiscal agent, such as a treasurer, figuratively, a preacher of the gospel, a chamberlain, a governor, So Jeff, you know, we see this is like you pointed out, it's not a familiar term, but I guess once we start digging in, we see it's just kind of this overarching word that means the management of something on somebody else's behalf, right? So you could say employer, employee, or as we'll get into, even us as human beings are stewards, right?
1: Right, exactly. And, and, you know, at least within modern terminology, when I hear the word steward, I sometimes think more of like a uh, uh, English, uh, Great Britain kind of setting where you have a large manor, manor house, and and someone is in charge of the house and the grounds and the servants and the and the whatever is being you know the 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 steward you know something far more than like a, even a butler, you know, someone who is uh, you know responsible for something uh, very important.
0: Yeah, I like that example because you're right. If you were to have the kind of wealth that would allow you to have an estate, and if you're a dignitary or somebody who is you know, spending your time away and not able to care for your property, if you will, you need somebody to oversee that. In fact, we see an example of this house distributor with Joseph. For those of you that are familiar with his story, you know he became a steward of Potiphar's house, and then eventually all of Egypt, which we'll get more into, So, that first Greek definition, house distributor, manager, overseer, it applies even to elders in a church. So, Titus chapter 1, verse 7 for a bishop or an elder is really what we're saying here. They must be blameless as a steward of God. So, you know, we were talking about that house distributor definition also meaning a preacher. Well, certainly, whether it's a preacher or an elder overseeing a congregation, they have a spiritual responsibility to that congregation therefore they're stewards okay so the second definition is commissioner domestic manager guardian and it can even mean tutor and so matthew chapter 20 and verse 8 has an example where this greek word is used where it says the owner of the vineyard said to his steward so that one's very similar to what we've been talking about but some as we look at some of the synonyms you know terms that we probably recognize in our culture today administrator manager, supervisor could be a custodian, a guardian, a keeper, an agent. So you think about talent agents and sports agents, those kinds of things. Curator, superintendent, like a superintendent of a school, those kinds of things. So once again, kind of an overarching term, Jeff, but I think by these different terms we're looking at, we can clearly see that we're responsible for doing something on someone else's behalf.
1: Right. And hopefully our audience does as well. Because one of the things we'll, you know, immediately get into now is having the proper attitude as a steward, and especially when it comes to our attitude that we should have toward what God has given us. And we'll, you know, later on in the podcast we'll get into all the different kinds of aspects of that in terms of what God has given us. But for starters, we need to have you know, as stewards of all the wonderful blessings God has given us, the right attitude. And in, in some ways, at a very base level, I'm reminded of what David said in First Chronicles chapter 29. And you can kind of look at that context of, of verses 1 through 17 of First Chronicles 29. But note, especially in verse 11, and of course he is in prayer, or discourse, or, or speaking uh, to God, if, as I recall. Verse 11 says, For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. A similar thought in verse 14. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. In that particular context, they had gathered materials for the building of the temple. And basically, David was acknowledging, you know, the heavens, the earth, everything on the earth everything they had to give to god in terms of you know construction materials was already owned by god so and as you know god is the owner and we are therefore by extension stewards now that basically is an expression of a very fundamental truth that you can find in the very first book of the bible back in genesis and that is god as the supreme being created The heavens and the earth, created everything associated with the earth, created humanity, and basically put them in charge. Brian, if you would, why don't you go ahead and read Genesis 1, verses 26 through
0: 28. Okay, Uh, here it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle
1: Well, whether we're willing to acknowledge God as creator or not, he is creator. Hence, in terms of the analogy we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, he's the owner. He's the owner of the planet. He's the owner of everything on the planet. And anything that might come under our control or anything we might gather or anything we might earn, etc., or to some ways ourselves... You know, we are, quote unquote, you know, owned by God. And some people may bristle at that concept, but if he created everything, that's just the natural, logical uh, conclusion. And, and hence, you know, anything that comes under our responsibility as stewards, which there's a lot, which we're going to get to in a few moments, basically is not, it's not really ours. You know, it's not like, well, it's mine. I can do whatever I want to with it. Well, no, because it is ultimately owned by
0: God, Right. Yeah, and I was thinking about Paul's statement in Galatians chapter 2:20 where he says, you know, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, if we allow God's word to live in us, then and to your point, which is the bigger point and that is that we simply acknowledge that God is the creator of the universe, has every right to tell us how to live and how we should conduct ourselves as it relates to what he's blessed us with, then we need to have this attitude. One way we can kind of break down stewardship is into physical and spiritual. So why don't we do that and start with the physical? When you think about being a physical steward, like we talked about, it could be over an estate it could be at your job, over a department, those kinds of things. Well, when you think about physical from a household perspective, we were talking about Joseph earlier. And if you have your Bible, Sandy, and wanna turn over to Genesis chapter 39, here it talks about how Joseph became Potiphar's steward, as we mentioned earlier. So Genesis 39 beginning in one uh, verse one says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, An Egyptian bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. It says the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority so pausing there for a moment that probably is one of the biggest differences between a steward and just somebody that's a worker right a steward in this particular case was put over everything in his house so you know meals servants probably paying bills who knows right so everything verse 5 says so it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the lord blessed the egyptian's house for joseph's sake And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus, he left all he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. So, when we think about this statement, he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate, that's telling us Joseph took care of everything. He didn't have to worry about any of that. Potiphar, as it says here, completely trusted Joseph. God blessed him, but Joseph was a righteous man, and he endeared himself to Potiphar and gained his trust. Joseph was a good steward over Potiphar's house. Now, we see that in Joseph's life, eventually he was made steward on a much larger scale. So over in Genesis chapter 41, if you look at verses 40 and 41, Pharaoh speaking to Joseph after Joseph interpreted dreams That nobody else could interpret, you know, through God's help, explain the dreams to him. And Pharaoh was so impressed, he basically said, I can't think of anybody else that would be appropriate to put in, you know, over Egypt than Joseph. So he says in verse 40 of Genesis 41, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. So, That tells you about the trust, right? Not only over Pharaoh's house, but over the land of Egypt. And of course, as I'm sure you know, if you know the story, he was put in a critical role when there were going to be several years of famine after several years of plenty. And so Joseph had a really good plan, of course, with God's assistance to store up grain and and those kinds of things to help them through that. So when we think about today, our own physical household, what is required of us as stewards? Well, the scriptures teach us that we need to provide for our family. We, if we're a husband and, you know, have a wife and children and so forth, we need to provide them with things like food, clothing, shelter, those kinds of things. And we see, you know, just one passage that talks about that, 1 Timothy five eight. but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so I think that's something that should be obvious to us, but maybe not always, right? So anyhow, how about the house itself, your physical structure that you live in, if you live in like a standalone house? Well, you have maintenance, right? And, you know, you need to take care of whether it's, you know, yard if you have that, plants, you know, the painting of the house, repairing it, all those kinds of things. Well, if we're not a good steward and we're lazy, well, that's not something that would be acceptable to God. And once again, hopefully that's obvious. So Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 18 says, Because of laziness, the building decays. And through the idleness of hands, the house leaks. So, Jeff, just a real basic lesson there, right, on physical households and what we're responsible for as stewards in our own house, if you will.
1: True, and good points. Let me just maybe add one or two other thoughts. You know, you mentioned, like, you know, people who own a house. You know, I could easily see that extended to renters who, you know, the owner of the property rents out the property, the person comes in and trashes the place, not being a good steward. Sometimes in terms of taking care of your, you know, family, you know, physical needs, et cetera, sometimes we hear the term deadbeat dad, or, you know, sometimes it's the wife that uh, neglects. The, the duties of the, uh, a good steward, you know, taking care of the family, you know, providing for the kids, etc. So yeah, we could take this one and, and apply it in a number of different directions in a physical sense, physical household. Brian, any other thought before we move to the next aspect? Uh, no, let's move on. All right. So how about we talk about possessions? You know, the things that we have, the things that we own. Well, again, Going back to First Chronicles chapter uh, twenty-nine, this time I'll read verse twelve. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might; in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Similar passage, Moses writing, you know, via the Holy Spirit, in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse eighteen. Of course, he's addressing the Israelites. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So in terms of our money, in terms of our car, uh, you know, in terms of our clothing, you know, anything that we might, you know, possess. The other thing I might talk about a little bit more, at least in terms of, you know, God gives strength, it is even our abilities to acquire possessions, God-given ability that we have to reason things out, and to you know get a job, and to execute whatever responsibilities we have, you know, on the job, to earn money, etc. You know, ultimately, you know, comes from God as well. So, in terms of you know application, you know, certainly taking care of what we have. And as we'll kind of see a little bit later on, not being greedy, although that's more directly related to money. And that'll be in the next section, just in terms of our physical possessions, which, as you said, would include like our house, but our cars, uh, our clothing, you know, basically everything that we would say is, quote unquote, ours, which ultimately really isn't ours, you know, belongs to God. And certainly in addition to that, being free of greed, Versus being content. So, by extension, that would include, you know, not being greedy or materialistic or keeping up with the Joneses, as we sometimes say here in the United States, of just acquiring and acquiring and acquiring, you know, materialism you know, for for the sake of, of having and owning. A related passage to that: First Timothy chapter six, verse ten. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So in addition to taking care of our physical possessions, there's also the importance of doing good with them. First Timothy chapter 6, a little bit further on in the chapter, verses 17 through 19, says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So, once again, acknowledging that even though something is ours, that's only in a limited sense, and in a... You know, needing to be a good steward of what is ours, you know, our, our, our physical possessions, as well as you know, using them for good,
0: right? Yeah, I really like that point because it does go beyond simply being a proper manager, if you will. It's also using it, as you said, properly. And you know, to kind of leverage what you were talking about as it relates to covetousness, greed, and the love of money, let's talk about money as a physical thing that we all generally possess. And when it comes to what we do with our money, one principle that we see throughout the scriptures is if we are truly grateful for all that God has done to us and for us, for the abilities that he's given us that allows us to go out and work a job and earn money, then one of our first things, maybe I would argue the first thing we should do is to give back to the Lord as we have prospered. And we see that this was something that the Lord expected under the old law. So over in Exodus chapter 22, we have this idea of giving our first fruits to the Lord. So Exodus 22, beginning in verse 28, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. So this is just one passage, but if you're familiar with the old law, or if you study this more closely, what you'll see is whether they were growing crops, whether they had cattle, they took the best, the unblemished, much like if you wanted to give a gift to somebody that you had complete respect for, and let's say you were going to give them a nice cow or a nice sheep, you would want to make sure that animal was pristine, if you will, no blemishes. Well, that's really what God wants, because that expresses to him that we appreciate everything he's done, and therefore we're going to give the best to him, and that's what he asked for, so it would be fulfilling that. Now, in the New Testament, under the law of Christ that we live under today, we have this basic principle in First Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul says to the brethren there, beginning in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, he says, Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And so when you think about the funding of a local congregation, it is based on the support of the brethren. And as good stewards, of course, we would fulfill this command joyfully. You mentioned Jeff helping those. That's another key one when it comes to giving. It's not to just the Lord or the church, but to those who are in need. So Galatians chapter six, verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity to let us do good to all. And we know that means all men, because the verse finishes by saying, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we have a f- responsibility especially if we have the ability to help those in need. Okay, so what is a good steward? What makes a good steward with money? Well, in addition to giving, they are just responsible with it. We are responsible, as in managing our debt, You know, not racking up a lot of debt that we might default on, as we say. We pay all of our bills on time. We set money aside for emergencies, for things like retirement, so that we are not a burden on others. And so that's a real basic principle that we see throughout the Scriptures. Someone that's a good steward of money has a proper perspective of money. They do not covet it. They do not hoard it. They do not make it their focus. So in Matthew chapter 6, and verse 24, and I'm going to read the New American Standard uh, rendering here. I like it a little better. It says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now some translations say mammon, some say money, but if you look at the Greek word here, it's really wealth. When you think about what is your wealth, it's not just the cash that you have in your pocket or your bank account, right? It's all of your wealth. If you own a house, a car, that's your wealth. And so I think we could all acknowledge that it's very easy to become materialistic, especially as you, let's say, earn more money, you increase your skills, you do a good job of saving, you have now money to spend, and it's all too easy just to say, well, what can I buy? I want this. I want that. And, and we lose sight of, you know, what we should be doing with that money. We end up hoarding it and coveting it and so forth. Jeff, could you read for us First Timothy 6 verses 9 and 10, where it also talks about the pitfalls of desiring to be rich?
1: Certainly. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts. Which drown men in destruction and perdition. Of course, this is according to the New King James. As we mentioned before, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows.
0: Yeah, so Jeff, if I asked you, what does it mean when it says that we fall into temptation and many foolish and hurtful lusts? What is that talking about?
1: Well, basically, if we have a love, Of money then money could easily become the center uh, focus of our life could become our God and then from that the point is to get more and more and more whether through legitimate means or not I mean for instance if you're in some extreme case you start cheating your customers you know, you start doing th- other things uh, that are, you know, wrong just for the sake of getting more money. As you mentioned earlier, we're we're kind of greedy. We don't give to others. We're we're never willing to help others financially, etc.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. And verse ten, where it talks about the love of money. So money itself isn't the evil; it's the love of it. But notice it says. Some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. And as you pointed out, you know, once it becomes your focus, and actually just as we read in Matthew six twenty four, it now becomes your master, becomes your God, and it causes us to stray from the faith, I would argue, if that's your focus.
1: Well, I'm also reminded of people in a very practical sense. They say, well, you know, I need to earn money, therefore I need to work on Sunday, therefore I can't come to church, as an example. Or in pursuit of a career or in pursuit of a job, they move to some place that really doesn't have a a sound congregation, but they're, they're pursuing what's important to them. And, you know, spiritual things are like number two or three or four in line and, you know, get to them if, if we get to them, but got to get that money, the almighty
0: dollar, we might say. Yeah. I appreciate that point because sometimes there is a fine line between wanting to get ahead, doing what's best for your family, doing what's best for your career but not crossing that line to where, as you mentioned, you're no longer worshiping, you're no longer you're doing the good works God wants us to do. Certainly something we have to think about. So what do the scriptures say that we should do instead? Well, first Corinthians, or excuse me, First Timothy chapter six, verses 11 and 12, give us a good idea where it says, "But you, O man of God, flee these things, flee that love of money, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness." fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you are also called, and having confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So love that section of scripture here, Jeff, because it's talking, of course, in verses 9 through 12 about here's what you shouldn't be like, and here's what God would expect instead. And oh, by the way, spiritually, you're going to be much richer if you have godliness, faith, love, patience, those kinds of So the other thing is we are willing to share. And Jeff, you touched on this earlier, so I won't spend a lot of time on this. But, you know, once again, continuing on in First Timothy chapter 6, now down in verses 17 through 19, it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, prideful, right? nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share storing up for themselves a good foundation for time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So love this section also because it's saying the spiritual wealth is what you should be adding to your life. You should be sharing and helping and building that spiritual foundation for the time to come. And then one final passage, Jeff, and then I'll turn over to you is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, where it says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we are not to lay our treasures up on earth, right? Just accumulate all these things, and boy, I have all these great things, but yet I haven't shared any. I haven't laid up treasures in heaven because I'm not using the money for those good works that God would like us to do. And then that final statement in 21, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Jeff, that's kind of like one of those maxims, right? That's just universally true and it will always be true. And we have to understand that.
1: True. Well, and, you know, this is an area where there's a lot of pitfalls, as we've tried to uh, suggest to our audience. I mean, even to the point of emphasizing money. So you lie, you cheat, you steal, you know, to get more of it or like a lot of people here in the United States that are like drowning in debt, drowning in credit card debt, student loans, uh, etc. And it's crippling when people, you know, get into those kind of situations. So, money certainly a very uh, key aspect of being good stewards. So, yeah, we've talked about money. We've talked about what money can buy, you know, in terms of possessions, including our homes. We've talked to a degree, a limited degree, figuratively in terms of our family and being you know, good stewards over, over our family, our household. But it's there's more than that. Again, if God created everything, including humanity, then what about something like our own bodies? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Note what it says here, and of course, this is within the context of uh, fornication, beginning of verse 18. Flee sexual immorality, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Uh, similar sentiment uh, being a you know, temple of God first Corinthians chapter 3 previous chapter uh, verses 16 and 17. Here's another passage Romans chapter 6 verses 12 and 13. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts and do not present your members as in your body parts of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, to sin, but present yourselves to God, as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Here's another key passage, likewise, further on in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Likewise 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 3 through 5 within that context talks about us needing to possess our own vessel, our bodies in sanctification and honor. So even our bodies are not ours to do with whatever we want. And from there, Brian, I mean, we could go in all different kinds of directions. I mean, as we, you know, read from the scriptures, that certainly includes, you know, sexual activity outside of a scriptural, you know, man, woman, marriage, include fornication, homosexuality, etc. cetera. Drinking, drugs, overeating. I mean, again, you could go in a number of different directions. Even to some extent, a lot of people disfigure their bodies with things like, you know, just excessive tattoos and piercings, et cetera. Anything associated with our body and what we do with our body, you know, we need to be wise stewards of the body God has has given to us. In fact, just to kind of wrap this up a little bit, Brian, at least within our country, there is sometimes the phrase, my body, my choice you know, within the context of legalized abortion. But, uh, well, first of all, you know, my body, my choice isn't technically accurate because there's a second body in the person, you know, the the unborn baby. But even that sentiment, my body, my choice, I can do with my body whatever I want to, it's like, mm, no, that is not true, based on these verses that basically say our bodies belong to God, right?
0: Yeah, and there are all kinds of ramifications for saying something like, my body, my choice, right? When you think about influence on other people, what we're talking about here is the willful disregard of your own body and your own health in general, because you want to do what you want to do with your body, and it just leads to all kinds of repercussions. So anyhow, now why don't we shift gears and talk about the spiritual so what makes a good steward from a spiritual perspective? Well, at a real basic level, we have to learn and obey the truth. You know, and that's once again obvious, where if we don't study, we don't understand God's will, then we can't do it. So 2 Timothy 2.15, and then King James says, "'Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth.'" So we not only study it, and you know, we talk a lot about, hey, read your Bible daily, no question about it but it's also important to pause especially if there's something that you don't understand or that you should study deeper and really look into what's being taught there so that you understand it most of the scriptures that we read are very straightforward and understandable but there are others where it just takes some further investigation if you will so we need to verify what's being taught we need to put it to the test first thessalonians 5 21 where it says test all things hold fast to that which is good so whether we're being taught by somebody or whether we read a passage and think it means whatever. We just need to verify that we have a proper understanding. And when it comes to teachers, we certainly know that there are many false teachers in the world. 1 John 4, 1, we're warned of that. You know, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, right? Or every person, if you will, that's teaching, who has a spirit. But test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We read about the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. They readily received, it says, receive the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So they did not just take even the apostles or the disciples of Christ's teaching at face value. They took the time to compare what was being said. They looked in the old law. If they would look to make sure that what was being taught was accurate someone who is spiritually a good steward also contends for the faith as we are encouraged to do in jude 3 to contend earnestly for the faith first timothy 1 18 paul encouraged timothy to wage the good warfare chapter 6 verse 12 to fight the good fight of faith so what does it mean to fight to wage warfare to contend well it's a military analogy right so from a spiritual perspective we watch out for enemies We're looking out for those temptations that the devil might bring our way or that we may bring on ourselves through our own lusts. We understand the tactics of maybe a false teacher. Why are they teaching what they are saying? Are they trying to draw me away? Are they teaching something contrary to God's truth? And if they are, then we defend the truth. Now, we don't physically try to harm them, but instead we try to reason with them. And just as God said in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, where he says, come now and let us reason together. The mature Christian seeks to have spiritual discussions to resolve any differences based on God's word. And so, you know, Jeff, sometimes people can become very passionate about what they believe in, and it literally turns into arguments and physical fights, right? So I think we understand that's not what's being taught there, right? Exactly. Preserve the truth would be the last one here. You know, this kind of goes along with defending the truth. So all Christians have the responsibility to preserve the truth. It's not something like an elder or a preacher is responsible for. Yes, they have that responsibility, but really we all do. So we protect it from being altered, you know, such as, you know, musical instruments in worship or use of the church treasury, you know, helping just anybody and not discerning what those funds are used for. And, you know, as we teach our children... You know, we can create a situation where they also, throughout the future generations, can preserve the truth when they understand how critical it is to not allow it to be altered. You know, we have an example under the old law uh, about what happened after Joshua and the elders died. And Jeff, could I get you to read Judges 2.10? It talks about what occurred with the Israelites after Joshua and the elders that followed him all died.
1: When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, basically died, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for
0: Israel. So you had a lack of teaching. Parents stopped teaching their children about God. Then I think we can all reasonably conclude that they're a lot less likely to follow God. They certainly could on their own. They could certainly be taught by others. But the truth is, often they are a reflection of their parents' mentality or thoughts as it relates to God and religion and all those kinds of things. In fact, what happened with that generation is further explained in Judges chapter 17 and verse 6. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's where society goes. If you study civilizations over time, they typically, after a certain number of years, what we might call implode because of ungodliness. And so we have plenty of case studies, don't we, Jeff, of that? And the last thought I'll share and then I'll turn it over. We were talking earlier about how an elder must be blameless as a steward of God. So elders have a responsibility to be good stewards spiritually, to ensure the preacher is teaching what the Bible says, that the members are doing what God needs and wants them to do, and that they're actively working, all those kinds of things. And as Paul warned the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 and verses 28 through 31, they have to protect the flock, right, or the local church from savage wolves and men that rise up from among them to teach false doctrine. So, Jeff, certainly a lot of responsibility in the spiritual realm when it comes to being good stewards. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as important as,
1: you know, money may be or our physical possessions or even our bodies. You know, above and beyond that, even even more important would be God's word, God's truth, you know spiritual, the spiritual guidance that has been entrusted to us by God. And as you've you know indicated, you know taking great care, great uh, diligence, being very responsible for that uh, extremely important thing. Continuing on with uh, another thought regarding you know spiritual kinds of things to include like our talents and our abilities and proper use of them, to include doing spiritual things, uh, good works, etc. Certainly we have that expressed in figurative form in the parable of the talents that you can read in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, as well as Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Now, there may be a point of confusion for some in our audience. This word talent in our modern culture, a synonym for an ability in their culture, then, especially within the parable, it was a unit of money. So, hence, with a parable talking about physical money, you know, the owner giving his uh, stewards, you know, various amounts of money and expecting them to buy and sell and get gain, invest wisely, etc. Certainly by parallel, in a figurative sense, you know, our figurative talents, our abilities, etc. and doing the best, you know, that we can with, again, once again, what God has entrusted to us. Now, certainly, sometimes people have what we might call natural ability or natural talent to some degree. But more often than not, even that needs to be groomed, or developed, or et cetera. And hence why people go to school, why they read books, et cetera. And of course, within a spiritual context, reading the Bible, investigating it, trying to apply it to our lives, and grow our abilities to, you know, understand the Bible, trying to apply it, trying to encourage others to apply it, et cetera. And certainly... I might add in terms of, you know, talents and abilities, again, wisely using them. And one reason why I mention that is, you know, sometimes you mention with in terms of like false teachers, false preachers, et cetera. You know, we can encounter some people that are, are pretty smooth, what we might call smooth talkers that we would want to be you know careful about. Swindlers, con men, we see that in the physical realm, people being swindled out of money. Uh, in a spiritual sense, people being swindled out of their soul, out of their spirit, their eternal spirit, which you know God has given to us. And likewise, you know, using our talents as opposed to, you know, being lazy, for instance, a couch potato or however you want to phrase that. So, yes, spiritual application of our talents and our abilities,
0: which likewise come from God. Brian? Appreciate those points. Very good. And one final section here as it relates to you know being a good spiritual steward, we were talking about physical households and families. We have a responsibility to provide food and clothing and to take care of our houses or our rentals or anything that we are responsible for. Well, from a spiritual perspective, we realize that there needs to be a, a strong spiritual house as well. And in Proverbs chapter 24 and verse three, it says, through wisdom, a house is built. And by understanding, it is established. And of course, we recognize that's speaking about spiritually. You might remember, if you're familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, that in Matthew chapter 7 in verses 24 and 25, you know, Jesus talks about if you have this strong foundation that are based on His words and His truth, then when difficulties and storms of life come at you, a house with a strong foundation and a physical storm can survive that storm. A house with a strong spiritual foundation can also survive all the things that life throws at us, as we might say. So Matthew 7, 24 and 25, if you'd like to take a look at that. So how does being grounded in the truth help a family? Well, I think we could acknowledge that, you know, when you have principles that you follow from God's Word and you teach those to your children, then it becomes a guide for the entire family with important decisions, with spiritual development, with how we treat others, doing good works, and those kinds of things. So very important in helping a family to be grounded in the truth. You know, Psalm chapter 127 and verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So God sees children as a blessing. And as parents and being good stewards for our children, we also should view them as a blessing and thank God that he's given us the ability to help mold their lives in the right direction. So we teach them the principles of God's Word and how it applies in life. Money, temptation, as we were just saying, you know, treatment of others, all those kinds of things. In fact, Ephesians 6, 4 tells fathers that it's their responsibility to ensure that children are brought up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, no doubt mothers are involved, and frankly, if the father works and, you know, the mother's really actively involved in raising those children, uh, whether she works or not, but the key is It's the responsibility of the parents to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And then we have this general principle over in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6, where it says, Train up the child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so while that might not be an absolute statement, I think we would all realize and and probably recognize, just from watching people that we know grow up, that this is very true. If you establish those spiritual principles, they're not likely to depart from it. It's going to be embedded and their life. A couple other quick thoughts. It also includes correcting them. You know, none of us enjoy having to discipline our children, but it's necessary. So Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 18 says, "Chasten your son while there is hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. And in a similar thought, Colossians 3 21, father, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So there's that balancing act. If they do something that's wrong, we need to teach them. There should be some discipline But that discipline shouldn't be harsh. It should not be child abuse, for instance. It should not be such that it causes the children to be discouraged because you're so strict. They can never please you kind of thing. And so, Jeff, we also want to be sensitive to that as well.
1: Yeah, lots of good points. And just kind of as a sort of a quick wrap, as we've seen, since God is the supreme being, created everything, created us, etc., We are stewards in many, many, many different ways. And hopefully our audience now kind of appreciates uh, all those different aspects.
0: All right, so let's go ahead and move into the last section where we answer questions that have been submitted to our website, BibleQuestions.org. And the first question comes from Elizabeth. Elizabeth says, we know from the Bible that if you don't believe, if you don't entrust your plans to God, you will not succeed because it is God who directs our steps. And it's God's blessing that brings wealth, that no effort can substitute it for it. While we have our own intelligence, she says, and skills, if we don't commit ourselves to God, I believe, as per the Bible, we will not make it. So then she asked, how come, then, that Bill Gates, who is a non-believer, is the wealthiest person? Right.
1: And I think what she may begin to realize is in essence, if you take some scriptures that we'll talk about in a few moments and make them absolute in absolutely every case, the righteous will prosper, the wicked will not, the righteous will be wealthy, the wicked will be poor, etc., that that collides with reality. You know, she mentioned Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, any number of people, you know, multi, multi billionaires that have either no sense of stewardship from God or maybe a denominational. And I think where we kind of start with is recognizing that certainly in the scriptures, there are some, I'll say general rules of thumb, you know, certainly under the old Testament where, you know, the nation of Israel as a physical nation, as a theocracy living in the land of Canaan under God god talked to them directly in terms of hey when you do good these good physical things will happen to you if you do bad you know i will visit you with you know pestilence and famine and miscarriages etc so there was that certainly in his direct dealings with them which he does not deal with us in a equivalent way does not in terms of uh, christians and there's certainly a lot of wisdom in like psalms and proverbs where You know, the righteous will tend to make good decisions regarding these things, and God providentially will tend to bless them. But we've also seen cases where, you know, the wicked become wealthy. And so what we have to recognize is that while these things are generally true, they're not true in a totally absolute sense, that you will sometimes find righteous people that tend to be poor, and you will find wicked that tend to be rich. We see something similar to that or or the philosophy that she was expressing, you know, that the the righteous will always be blessed. We see that in the book of Job, where even though Job was exceedingly righteous, he suffered greatly, you know, suffered the loss of all of his fortunes, all of his wealth, etc. Not because he sinned, but because of, you know, things going on behind the scenes between, you know, God and Satan. Uh, John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The disciples kind of fell into that same trap of saying, hey, what physically happens to you in this life is a direct reflection always of your spirituality, your righteousness, or your wickedness. Uh, In the case of John 9, a man that had been born blind, he said, hey, who sinned, this man or his parents? Well, not necessarily. Certainly the Jews of Jesus' day likewise, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, talks about there were some Galileans who evidently had been sacrificing to God, and the Roman governor Pilate had come in and killed them. And Jesus was kind of confronting the attitude in the audience. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he relates, uh, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So certainly we see that God indeed tends to physically bless Christians. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and 26, for people that may worry about their lives, what they'll eat, what they'll drink, etc. You know, that passage certainly has comfort, as well as a challenge, if you continue on reading verses 31 through 33. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all things. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Third John, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. So, you know, certainly as we've seen today, God's Word also, in addition to God's providence, will help Christians with being wise stewards of what they have. Again, avoiding the love of money, avoiding get-rich-quick schemes. They should tend to be, you know, honest, hardworking, etc. But Brian, you know, just to kind of, you know, again, quickly summarize the concept that if you're righteous, you will be wealthy. And if you're wicked, you will be poor is an extreme uh, position as we see.
0: Yeah, appreciate those thoughts, especially because, yes, we definitely don't want to overgeneralize, you know, all people who are wealthy or evil and, you know, those who are not. There's a time and chance element there. People inherit things. And we certainly don't want to overlook the hard work that led to them being wealthy. And so anyhow, good thoughts. All right, so I guess you have the next one for me. Yep, I do. So Ron writes in, how many scriptures
1: in the Bible deal with financial stewardship? Also, does the parable of the talents refer to spiritual or financial matters?
0: So for the second part of that, I thought you did a good job answering that question when you talked about the parable of the talents earlier. And and yeah, it's almost, you know, one of those things that can be confusing because, yes, we all realize that we are given talents and abilities. But in that particular case, it's certainly talking about financially being good stewards. Now, the Bible does have quite a bit to say, though, about financial stewardship, some of which we've touched on. But let me just introduce a couple of other passages. We were talking about being good stewards of our physical possessions. We see over in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, it tells us, you know, that the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So they were united. And their attitude was, it tells us in verse 32, that they did not feel that any of the things they possessed were their own, but that they had all things in common. It goes on to say in verse 33, And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace is upon them all. No, Nor, it says verse 34, was there anyone among them who lacked? For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one or each as anyone had need. Now, that's not necessarily saying that we as Christians need to do the same thing, right? We're reading in here, let's just all sell everything we have. But, you know, they were going through a very unique period of time. It was the beginning of the church. The church was undergoing persecutions. They were being scattered. They had to leave their homes. We had famines that were taking place. So there were brethren that were very poor and had needs. And the wonderful attitude of those with that physical money and those physical possessions like land where they were saying, you know what, it's more important that I help my brethren, so I'm willing to sell these things. So just a, a really good example of really the attitude that they have. You know, we can also, the Bible teaches us that we can be poor stewards, such as the rich fool. And so, Jeff, could I get you to read Luke twelve sixteen through 21, where we see an attitude that we should not have as it relates to our physical possession? Certainly. Then he spoke
1: a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then, whose will those things be which you have provided?
0: So here we definitely see the attitude we shouldn't have. And this kind of speaks to, once again, that materialistic attitude where it's like, hey, I'm gaining so much, let me just build bigger storage areas or let me buy more things and just accumulate them. That's not what we should be doing. The Bible makes that very clear. And then as we touched on earlier you know, in 1 Timothy 6.10, there can also be temptations with money and it affects our stewardship. So that love of money, it says, is the root of many types of evil we have the parable of the rich young ruler, which we won't read all through, but let's just look at a couple verses. So Mark 10, verses 17 through 23. Here this rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically said, you know, you need to follow all of the truth, what God teaches. And he's basically, he answers, you'll see, and says, yeah, I've done these things since my youth, right? I've been faithful. Well, Jesus knew his heart, and he said in verse 21, Well, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Verse 22 says, But he was sad, this rich young ruler, at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God of God. So just a really nice principle here from God and certainly Jesus when it comes to our attitude towards having treasures on earth or having treasures in heaven. And he knew this rich man's heart. He knew that this man loved his possessions, so he challenged him. Are you willing to sell all that and come follow me? Well, this man was not, right? Because he wasn't willing to give those up. So we should learn from that, right? We could be the same way. We talked earlier about giving, and, you know, I mentioned 1 Corinthians 16:1 and 2. Well, also 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says that not only are we to give, but we should be a cheerful giver, willing to support the work of the local church and helping brethren and those kinds of things. We also have the examples of the widow who gave all that she had. You know, Luke 21, verses 1 through 4, Jesus compliments her and uses her as an example to those who were just giving lots of money. She only put in a few pennies, in essence, a very small amount. But the point Jesus made is she gave all she had. That tells you her attitude towards giving. And then, Jeff, as you read earlier in First Chronicles chapter 29, we see a wonderful example when the children of Israel were faithful and they abundantly were willing to give to the building of the temple. So these are all great examples of the financial principles that God's Word teaches us. So just a few thoughts there. Uh, Regarding that, and hopefully that answers Ron's question. Okay, I think it's uh, my turn, right? It is. So the next question for you comes from Ryan. He says, what about preachers that preach only a gospel of prosperity and earthly gain to line their own pockets to make themselves rich and popular? They use the scriptures to tell people that they must tithe and give offerings to them so that they can preach the gospel while they spread their false doctrines and live sumptuously.
1: Yes. now... Depending upon what you've heard, sometimes this is associated with something called the health and wealth gospel, sometimes the prosperity gospel, sometimes prosperity theology, and at least according to a little bit of research I did, it has been promoted by some pretty prominent religious leaders to include Benny Hinn, Oral Roberts, Joel Olstein, Kenneth Copeland, etc., which... Also is kind of tied back to the previous question. I think it was Elizabeth uh, had asked about, if you're righteous, you will be physically blessed, wealthy, etc. And as we alluded to in that answer, not always the case. In fact, there are a lot of warnings in the Scripture about wealth, about money, which we've kind of touched on, but let me offer up a, a few more Scriptures. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor abandon you. Certainly, we have the example of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. For in his case, to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands, and goes on to say we've been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. So Paul's given the fact that he was poorly clothed, homeless, etc., he must have been a very wicked person. Well, no, it, it doesn't work that way. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, where I guess the Philippians had contacted Paul in terms of giving him a financial aid and support. Uh, verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then finally, Brian, I'll turn it back over to you, a passage I think we've mentioned at least once. First Timothy chapter 6 verse 9 That those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires. So this concept of the prosperity gospel where, you know, if you give so much money to God, God will bless you with, you know, 10x in your bank account, basically is an abuse of the scriptures. And preachers that do that, likewise, abusing the scriptures. And over the years, you've probably heard all kinds of, you know, horror stories about some of these preachers gathering all this money, having private jets, multiple mansions, fancy cars, lots of what we might say bling jewelry, while they're proclaiming to be a Christian, which is certainly not setting the right example.
0: Yeah, and it just ultimately brings shame and reproach on the church, right, because they are sullying, if you will, the Lord's principles. And one other quick thing, Jeff, and then I'll turn over you for the last question. That is, You know, hopefully our listeners are impressed with how much the Bible has to say on this subject. I mean, I'm just looking through all the passages that we've talked about in this podcast related to this subject, and we've really only presented some of them, right? There's so much that I don't think anybody could say they don't understand what God feels on this matter.
1: Right. Okay, so uh, Brian, you get the last question from Barry. It's kind of a lengthy one, so let me see if I can get through it relatively quickly. Studying the book of James and other references, there's quite a bit of teaching about an inordinate accumulation of worldly goods, greed, and covetousness. The United States, apart from most of the rest of the world, in the last 100 years has acquired corporate pension plans, company-funded or partially matched 401k retirement investments accounts, social security income for those planning for retirement, etc., And Barry goes on to cite Philippians 4, verses 11, where Paul talks about being content, which I read a few moments ago. And then Barry continues on, I think it is common practice for all U.S. citizens, if possible, to try to plan and accumulate enough assets when they retire to cover their needs and wants for the rest of their life. What would be the equivalent for the modern-day Christian? Or should there be an equivalent? What biblical-based practical steps or guidelines should we take to manage our own material assets in ways that reflect proper, Christian values?
0: Yeah, I like the question because, you know, it is sort of a balancing act. We want to properly prepare, but we don't want to overly accumulate. And so how do we accomplish that? Now, we certainly know that the scriptures aren't saying we must be poor. It's wrong to be rich, as we've already pointed out. But God expects us to be good stewards of what he's blessed us with. And that includes preparing for the future without being a burden to our family, to our brethren, to the church. So, you know, no doubt we can focus so much on our earthly possessions that we end up storing up for ourselves like that man who built bigger barns, right? And so, you know, saving money through retirement programs is demonstrating good stewardship. As long as, once again, we don't take it to the extreme. I mean, whether it's a 401k plan or just investing in, let's say, the stock market, you could go after speculative investments and be unwise in your investments and lose all your family's wealth. So it's a balancing act. And, you know, there are passages that talk about being good stewards. And we reference some of these. I'll just give a few about how brethren and family should help if there's something that happens beyond our control. So it's not always our fault if we lose money. Let's say we could lose a job. We could have our house burned down. So in those cases, you know, we should be able to reach out to our family or other brethren. So if you look at First Timothy 5.4, you look at First Timothy 5.16, Acts chapter 2, as we read earlier, you know, about brethren selling houses and so forth and giving. So there's no doubt principles, whether it's our family, our brethren, or if necessary, the church, we can get assistance if we are in need. So as it relates to the church helping, I'll give our listeners Acts chapter eleven, twenty-seven 27 through 30, and Romans 15, verses 25 and 26, which talks about how God did... Set up the church to help needy saints, needy Christians, when their families or brethren are not able to help them. So, hopefully, Jeff, throughout this podcast, our listeners have been impressed upon the fact that the Bible has a lot to say about the truth regarding being good stewards and that we will take our responsibilities very seriously as it relates to our physical and spiritual walk. And we do those things that God would expect us to do, being responsible for what he's given us to manage. So anyhow, I'll I'll end my comments there.
1: (laughs) And a good conclusion to the podcast, I might add. And certainly lots of scripture references we provided during the podcast. But as always, we also like to encourage our listeners to go to our website at BibleQuestions.org. We'll have even more material and scripture references. To include under our topics menu item things like G for grace, which would include all of God's you know physical and spiritual blessings, G for greed, and G for giving, E for thankfulness, which is kind of all embedded in this concept of being good stewards. And since we mentioned our bodies and being wise stewards with our bodies, D for drinking and D for drug abuse. So again, lots of material on our website. would encourage our listeners to take advantage of it, especially the scriptures, read and study
0: what your Bible has to say, and then make good application to your life. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.